Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the One Shot Movement Podcast, where it's all about inspiration, education, diving deep into the stories of entrepreneurs, business people, sports stars, whoever's got an inspiring story to tell, and pulling out all the wisdom from their journey. Today, we have an incredible guest. His name's John Quinn. Uh, John, I've actually known uh, since the early 90s. He was a high-performance coach for the Australian Institute of sport and he did a lot of work with junior athletes and my football team at the time the Tassie Mariners football club but he then went on and got a key role with Kevin Sheedy with the Essendon football club and he helped them with their high performance program to their one of their most successful periods ever where they had a record year the best year in the history of the AFL he spent the best part of 10 years in the AFL working at high performance He's also worked with the Socceroos. He's travelled the world for high-performance coaching. He works with Olympic athletes. Um, He coached people at the 2000 Olympics and he's now, again, working with Olympians and Olympic athletes, high-performance. He's got an incredible story. Um, A lot we unpackage throughout his story because he's got so many different experiences, but also he's had challenges in his life as well. One in particular challenge was you know really changed and shaped him and he refers to it as growth but he ended up um, getting an autoimmune disease in his brain uh, where he he describes it as missing seven years of memory of his life wow what a when he dives into that he gets quite raw and emotional and such a powerful story so sit back enjoy and uh, look forward to hearing from John Quinn Okay, everybody, welcome to another episode of the One Shot Movement podcast where we dive deep into the stories of entrepreneurs, business people, sports stars, you name it. Uh, We're always aiming to get the best of the best of the best on the show so we can really provide you with as much value as we possibly can. And today I have an incredible, it's an incredible story and journey. We're just catching up um, beforehand, but I've known actually John and we have spoken about this before for a very long time. Myself, we have crossed paths in the early 90s uh, when he was down in Tasmania, but we have high performance coach John Quinn on, and he's going to share a little bit more about his story, but he's a high performance athletics coach who has been on an amazing journey through athletics prior to then being a part of a record-breaking um, effort with one of Australian Rules football's leading football clubs with leading football legend Kevin Sheedy. They had a record-breaking year with the Essendon Football Club and he really changed the face of high performance in the AFL. So he's going to share a bit about that. He also moved with Kevin Sheedy to help launch the GWS Giants in the AFL and he's now back in his passion and his love, which is athletics. And we're just talking earlier about some of the athletes that he's working with at the moment. One in particular is a rising star that's, you know, could be, you know, one of the best performed athletes Australia's ever seen. So we may even dive into that as well. But I'd like to welcome John Quinn to the show. And um, yeah, let's uh, go into your story. 
Good. And look, I did mention that we have crossed paths and um, you, you were saying that you went, when you went to Tasmania, I actually was a part of one of your AIS programs down and uh, for a very short period of time for middle distance running. Uh, so you were the sprint coach of it and there was a guy called Mike Pace, I think his name was, I was doing middle distance. So I, I was a part of that. And I was also a part of the Tassie Mariners football program where we were talking about uh, Gary Davidson, but Chris Fagan was involved then as well who's now Brisbane Lions coach but yeah let's start with your um your story (laughs) basically um I have mentioned that to you before and you couldn't remember it so um I mustn't have had too much of an impression I had a great time down in Tasmania I was there actually for a period of about six years and I ended up down in Tasmania as the Australian Institute of Sport coach uh, based in Tasmania. It was under the auspices of the Tasmanian Institute of Sport. So it was a really complicated thing. And I look back on it now, I was 26 and I had uh, an opportunity and they actually gave me a choice of either going to Townsville and uh, being a part of the Queensland Academy of Sport or being in Tasmania. And as a 26-year-old, I thought I knew everything. And um, it's only now that I'm 55 that I realise it's now that I know everything. But uh, as a 26-year-old, I really thought I did. And so I um, chose to go down to Tasmania where I could run a program myself. So I landed down there in Hobart and it was almost like a, a bit of a baptism of fire because you've got this young, enthusiastic, university qualified coach coming in to tell people that have been there for umpteen years, this is how we're going to do it now. And uh, it took me a little while, as in a few months, to sort of see to recognise the lay of the land. And I hadn't been to Tasmania until I'd gone down there for the job. And uh, what I um, discovered down there is Tasmania, and I don't mean this to be funny or anything like that, I view Tasmania as, as a country. It's mm-hmm. its own country. Just like New Zealand is a separate island, so is Tasmania. Yeah. And they do too. And they talk about the mainland down there. So hello to any of the Tasmanian listeners. <laughs> I talk about the mainlanders. Um, and... Uh, I, I deduced that it's basically got three states. It's got the north, the south, and the northwest. Mm. So when Tassie was being settled, all the convicts were down south, and then the free settlers went up north. And if you look at the properties and everything up north, they've got these grand houses and drives into their you know, massive properties. And there's a, a, a point, and it's actually called a junction, Oakland's Junction, which divides the state from the north to the south. Mm. And then on the other side, you've got all the northwest, and they sort of are a law under themselves over there and they've got their own capital, you know, and they even argue that between Devonport and Burnie. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realise as a 26-year-old that what I had to do was unite the country of Tasmania against the mainland. So mm. it's, it was not that bad when you had a common enemy. So that's what we did. Yeah. And uh, the, the, the fortunes of the Institute actually, you know, with uh, some very good coaches down there, and I think it's one of the best institute programs in the country, actually. And uh, it really lifted, and the whole standard of the sport lifted across um, across Tasmania. And uh, yeah, I was able to be part of that, and I loved it. I loved Tasmania, and uh, got a lot of uh, fond memories of my time down there. Yeah, and and I guess, uh, and you you did mention you moved down from New South Wales at the time at the Rugby Heartland, and we did uh, have a chat about you did end up moving into. Um, a sport you didn't know much about or didn't really know the, yeah. I, 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 it's not that I didn't know much about it. I virtually didn't even know how to spell AFL. Right? 
when I moved to Tasmania. I had no interest in it at all. Yeah. I'd grown up in a, a, a country town outside of Canberra, a little town called Yaz, um, mm. where I'd played rugby league. By the time I was 20, I had played rugby league for 14 years. I'd even coached the junior team, which indirectly got me into athletics, and I refereed it. So rugby league was my thing, a mad Parramatta fan. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that, I couldn't imagine being involved in any other sport but rugby league. But when I got down to Tasmania, um, one of the things about Tassie is it's got great focus on its programs. And there's really only four programs, the four key programs, rowing, cycling, hockey, and track and field. And so if you're an individual that's quite good at, say, um, tennis, you might get support from the Institute, but they're not, they're not going to start a tennis program. Uh, if you might, you might be a very good swimmer, you'll get program support, but they're not going to do anything. The other big sports down there, uh, which they can look after themselves virtually, uh, AFL and cricket. And then you can even just look at the Australian teams, you can see what uh, talent we've got in those sports. Mm. But um, what would happen is a young young boy, such as when you were down there as a young fellow in, uh, in Hobart, that if you were talented at football, they would send you off to get some speed and agility. Well, they can't send you to the rowing, cycling or hockey coach. So they'd come to me as track and field. And <laughs> I almost saw it as not an imposition because it was part of what I had to do. But, you know, I'm getting all of these, what I'd term at the time, novelty sports coming to me. So <laughs> I was only interested in the purity of track and field. And all of a sudden I've got to teach these guys that are, you know, playing AFL um, how to run. And look, they were good kids and you, you, you fall in love with coaching and, and improvement. So they were going off to things that they were calling the draft combine and camps and all this sort of thing. And what I didn't realise at the time is they were actually uh, improving and getting better and uh, getting drafted. And uh, a lot of it was around, not not they were talented, but a lot of it was standing out because they were getting faster and more agile. And my name kept coming up in circles. So it eventually uh, landed in the, on the desk of Kevin Sheedy to look at this guy in Tasmania. And that's actually, I got a phone call out of the blue to mm. go to um, uh, Essendon Football Club um, based on the fact that I'd worked with the Tassidy boys down there to get them uh, for us. So I didn't even know really what colours Essendon were or anything about the club. And <laughs> it just came at a time when uh, we're expecting uh, my first... Uh, first child, and uh, there were some things they were, going to, they were talking about uh, re-centralising the Institute of Sports. I meant I might have to move back to Canberra and all these sort of things. It just seemed a, something different to do. So when we moved to Melbourne, and uh, I walked into Essendon, and um, yeah, I, I can still remember um, shaking hands with the players, and I said to this one player, oh, are you, um, are you like as a senior player, are you one of the juniors? He goes, oh, no, no, I'm one of the senior players. My name's Matthew Lloyd. I mean, he's one of the champion players of the time of the game, but no one from the other. Right. And and I guess, um, you know, you did, like, the the transition of AFL at that time really sped up in lots of areas for, you know, fully professional, the incomes rose quite dramatically, but you implemented, you know, high-performance Essendon through that period were probably unlucky not to win two, if not even three premierships through that golden run what did you bring to the table that really changed the landscape there it's a good question because in some ways i think that i i wasn't the reason but i contributed to SNS success I, I do think that but i also think i contributed to the fact that they didn't win those games so we got the one in 2000 which was a record-breaking year still where we only lost one game in a whole year and it was just a fairy tale 
year in 2000 in um, many respects. But in 99 when I was there, that was my first year and they went from being, you know, outsiders to we lost a preliminary final to Carlton by one point when uh, one of the Carlton players uh, slotted goal uh, with just seconds to go on the clock and mm. uh, they won by a point. It was devastating. So still to this day, um, I can still have that feeling of just um, a heartbreaking loss mm. and uh, that drove the passion to go forward. But going back... When I first got to Essendon, I didn't know anything about it. And so I looked at the game through very different eyes. I didn't look at it as a fan. I didn't didn't have any preconceived ideas of what they've done in history. And I just looked at the way they um, trained and what they were doing. And it appeared to me that the game was one from an athlete's point of view. They were like 400, 800 metre runners. Mm. And that was my area of expertise. So I started restructuring programs um, around that. And I can still remember uh, Kevin Sheedy saying to me, you know, do you think that uh, they need to be doing more 10-kilometre runs or they need to be doing this? And I said, no, I think they need to do this sort of work. And so um, off it went. And uh, he, he had the, uh, I was courageous really, mm. to, um, to trust me and then off we went. And so, yeah, we changed it to a game of more repeat sprintability and I was able to bring that into the game. And uh, no other clubs had to copy it, it would be left behind. And, he- uh, yeah, now repeat sprintability in AFL is just common. Yeah, and, and I guess at that period of time too, like you've changed, I guess, a model. But I, I always think about athletes that, you, you know, like say elite athletes that you're working with right now, um, you know, everything is technique and everything is, um, you know, like you practice taking off off the blocks and all those real little small one percenters, whereas I can remember training as a, you know, semi-professional state league footballer and it was really just keep working harder keep grinding it out push yourself harder would you say that you brought that element to the game as well Well, look i'm not sure if i've brought it but i do have a very um clear vision of how i coach people and one thing i know i did bring into my role say in the afl and, and subsequent roles is i think you coach people on um different platforms, but it's very personal. And getting someone physically fit, going harder and doing more, oh, that's easy. And you can look up on the internet now and get the program to, you know, what should a 400 metre runner do? And we can copy, you know, the world record holder. We can copy their program if you want and, and mm. do that. But it's far more complex than that. Mm. And it comes down to um, where they are as people. And you've got to know what that individual needs. When I was at Essendon, I got to know players individually and what that individual needed. Um, and it's not just about the physical training, it's about where they are. You know, if I said to the players and we're down by um, three goals at half-time and they're in the rooms and I, I said to them as we're going out, listen, you players, what are you, what are you doing? Show me a bit of spirit in this, this second half. There was nothing in the first. I'm not asking anybody to fall on their knees and bless themselves, but I've mentioned the word spirit to them now. Hmm. And I think you've got mental, physical, and spiritual that you've got to coach personal. Hmm. And the mental, the physical I've talked about, mentally they get more confident because they're feeling fitter and stronger. But it's only when you hit someone spiritually that you can get the most out of it. And spiritually, spirituality is about knowing who you are, where you are, and what you're capable of. And hmm. as a coach, I've got to be able to bring that out of the people that I work with. Now, whether that's an AFL footballer about to play their first game or they're playing in a grand final or if it's someone 
that's trying to get the best out of themselves for the job that they're doing in the workplace. Mm. That's the key to success, the balance between your mental, physical and spiritual preparation. Yeah, and while we're talking about, I guess, training and standards and things like that at the moment, I always look at how sports stars and, you know, I often try and use metaphors around, you know, athletics or or, or, uh, sports stars into business and into life and always think about seasons and you have your pre-seasons, your off-seasons, your in-seasons and um, what would you say about preparing to perform at a high level. So it, we, you do that for athletes now, but what about, you know, for business or anything like that? Is it the same principles? Yes, well, yeah, you, you break it down into many different things. I think if you look at the ultimate goal, and it almost seems insurmountable, you break it down into manageable bits and show them that they can do that. And as they can t- do take one step, they get a little bit more and a bit more confident in uh, in where they're going and then they start to see that bigger picture of what you're talking about. But you, you can't be staring off at the distance. Look at what you've got to do there and then. You hear people talk about, look at the process, look at the process, just focus on that and everything looks after itself. Mm. I, um, I was actually up last night and, you know, this is uh, a part of the fact that you're getting old as a coach. You've also got to stay in touch with things. I had a young tennis player I was working with at the track here in Sydney last night. He comes down to speed and footwork. And I've been working with him now for about four weeks to try and get him um, moving in a particular way. And I just tried a different coaching cue and suddenly he did it. And he walked back and I said, oh, mate, that was fantastic. He said, yeah. He said, I really felt that. I said, well, it's about time the penny dropped. Did you hear the penny drop, did you? And he goes, oh, no, I think that was my chain that you heard rattling. what about at the time like Essendon was a big club big brand um Kevin Sheedy you know in my personal opinion would be one of the biggest figures in the history of the game what he's done in terms of promotion of the game as a player as a coach he's done everything what would it be like, or what was it like, working with someone like him? Well, I, I think outside the box, um, and with uh, Sheeds, um, you know, he's so far out of the box. You know, there's the box isn't big enough to contain him you know, <laughs> in his thinking, and uh, sometimes he can be an extremely frustrating person to work with. But you've got to work with people, mm. and uh, I remember that um, uh, when we were that first lot of finals that we were getting ready for. And, I'd had this fantastic periodised model, you know, based on all my academic knowledge of what would happen in terms of we're going to have this many cycles of training and we'll load it with this percentage and we'll have this recovery mode and all of that. Mm. And Sheeds had followed that through and we'd cycled up three weeks up, one week down, all through the season, everything was going great. And it got to finals. And all of a sudden the session that was meant to go for like um, 40 minutes it was going for 60, and I'd go to Sheeds and say, oh, Sheeds, that's, we've been over 20 minutes. He'd go, no, it's all right, it's all right. And then another, you know, 10 or 15 minutes ago, and I'd go, anyway, the session had doubled. And I, really, I went to him and said, mate, we can't, um, we can't keep going like this. And he said, well, how many finals have you coached in AFL? And I said, well, you know, I haven't been involved in AFL. He goes, exactly. I've been to a number of finals, so let me look after the finals, and you just look after the players. And I went home, and I worried about it. And, I, in fact, I couldn't sleep. And during the night I had this epiphany 
of what I was going to do. So I, um, I got up, uh, it was quiet, and I, I knew it was in this book, and I went to this book, The Complete Works of William Shakespeare, and I looked through it, I looked through it, and there it was, I found it. So I'd written it down, and then I got into work early, and I blew them up onto um, A3 sheets of paper, and I put one where Sheets put his car, um, I put one at the gate that he'd come through, I put one on the door that he'd go through, I put one on the stairs he'd go up, I put one on his door, one on his desk and one on his chair. And then <laughs> I just went back into my office and waited. Eventually he gets in and, of course, I got the obligatory phone call. I can't say exactly what he said, but it was along the lines of what the... <laughs> and I said, oh, if you're here, I'll be right up. So I run up and, and he goes, what's all this uh, that you've got around? And I said, oh... William Shakespeare was a very good coach, Sheets, and uh, I just thought it might be useful for you to understand how good of a coach he was. He said, what do you mean, William Shakespeare? We've got finals to get ready for here. And I said, well, Sheets, that there is telling you what we need to do. And he said, what telling me? He said, I don't even understand it. I said, it's out of a midsummer night's dream, and, you know, it's staying hour upon hour they ripe and ripe, and hour upon hour they rot and rot, and thereby hangs a tail. He says, what are you talking about? I said, Sheets, we've spent all season getting the players ready. They're right. Hour upon hour, that's you now doing extra work. They're going to rot and rot. And if you don't get the tail, we're going to be in trouble here. That's what he's saying. <laughs> but what I'm saying to you is get this crap out of my office. <laughs> let me get rid of the phone. So I've gone back down and I thought, well, that was an abject failure. So training comes, it gets to the 45-minute thing, and I've gone over to him and said, Sheets, that's time. And he looked at me, gets his whistle, and he goes, Okay, into the coach. And as I'm walking, he calls me over and he says, Hey, are they ripe yet? <laughs> From that time on, never had any more issues with training and how long they had to go because it was just a way of communicating with Sheeds on a different level that he responded to and totally understood. Mm. And I think that's, I think, is what you've got to do, think not just laterally and creatively in terms of financial return, but how can you be creative and lateral in getting your message across, speak yep. to people in the language that they understand, not what you want to tell them, mm. tell them what they need to know and how do they understand it. Yeah. That's, that's what I learned from Shakespeare as well. That's, that's a really powerful lesson, communication skills, whether you're in business, whether you're a coach, whatever it is, you know, how you can relate to different people can... Uh, ultimately affect the end result so it's a really good life example there what about on a different level um working with the players like at the time were who who did you like working with from a you know relationship point of view they really responded well to your guidance coaching advice when I went in, the, uh, the doctor at the club, um, who's a very good friend of mine, Bruce Reed, he said, look, mate, you're going to be um, approached by uh, the guy that's been the captain of the club, a guy called James Hurd. He's mm. had a recurrent navicular stress fracture, so navicular's a small bone in your foot. And mm. in those days, once you'd had a, a navicular broken twice, you were pretty much gone. And he said, he's going to um, haunt you. Uh, he'll be down there. So uh, I'd no sooner I hit my chair in my office and I've got James Hurd in my room. And I said to Hurdy, look, um, you need to do this, this, this. And if you follow what I'm saying, I'm sure we'll get you through it. So he did exactly what I told him to do. And um, it was that first game again, uh, whether it's just Winston, it was against Carlton in a practice game. And um, Hurd came to the bench and he's sitting beside me. And we knew that the bone in his foot had cracked for a third time. 
and no one in history at that point ever recovered from three navicular distress fractures. Mm. And uh, he knew that his career was over, and I did too. We're sitting there, and I'm thinking, you've been in the sport for five minutes here, and you've broken down one of the greatest players in the game. You've been <laughs> four years earlier. You've broken him down, and he's done what you said. So the next day, I didn't even know how I was going to confront him with the recovery, and he just came up to me, and he said, look, what are we going to do? And I looked him in the eye and actually lied to him. <laughs> said, I'm glad you've asked because I've got some great ideas, but now's not the time to ask. So mm. I'm, yeah. I'm not really. And uh, anyway, he went away and I said we'd, we'd meet up at the club the next day. So when he came, and I did, when I was with athletics, we used to travel extensively through the world uh, for competition. And uh, we spent a bit of time in places like Stuttgart. And mm. was over there, I came across a fellow called Moore Wolfhard, who was a, the, um, a leader in terms of um, rehabilitation and surgery, particularly with this. Anyway, to cut the story short, I contacted Muller and we were able to get this special drug into the country, got Therapeutics Goods Act approval and everything else. First time it had ever been done in this country, they injected um, OP1, it was called, osteoprotein 1, into James Hurd's foot and the bone, it stimulated it to grow and mm. James Hurd never had a sore foot from that day forward and, of course, he captained the team to the Premiership the next year. Um, we became incredibly close just from working day to day but I had an absolute obligation to rehabilitate him through my poor initial advice. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I nearly ended his career, but I'm fortunate to be able to say that I had a fair hand in being able to get him back up just because of my background in athletics. Mm. But, um, yeah, so I had a very close relationship with him as a player, but no, he wasn't the only one. I had, I had a pretty close relationship with all of them. As, a, as I say, you've got to... Um, you get as close to knowing what makes a player or an individual work as you possibly can. And I tried to do that, you know, and uh, you, you, it's, it's up to the player how much they want to open up to let you in, as much as it is for the coach to be have the door open for them, so to speak. Hmm. And you um, obviously spent a really good portion of time at Essendon with Kevin Sheedy, but he um, his great tenure of four premierships come to an end, um, and then he then really went on and helped found um, GWS as their first senior coach, a new startup club. But you were his you know high performance uh, coach there as well. What was... Well, it's interesting because I, I don't know that Sheeds even knew that I was going to be the head of performance there. And, and I didn't know when I was in the initial talks with the AFL that, that he was going to be the coach. So that's, that's almost by coincidence, I think. All right. That, that we ended up together in Sydney. So Sheeds left Essendon and I, I thought, well, you know, it's a changing time. The winds of change blow through everything eventually. Um, and I was there for a year, and the winds of change are blowing for me as well. Uh, the coach that came in there had a very different approach to Kevin Sheedy and, uh, you know, wanted to make his own mark, as I'm sure he would. Mm. And um, I had a fairly strong presence at that club, and I think that um, it was probably going to be inevitable that um, I was going to have to go. And uh, at the end of that year, um, I, I was more than ready to, to leave the Bombers. I love the Bombers, but I didn't like the direction in which they were going, and... Uh, I didn't really agree with the manner in which they were being coached and uh, felt that the whole place had changed um, in, without uh, Kevin Sheedy at the front. And, and I think um, oh, it, I'm not just talking about the people that came in, but the whole, the whole feeling of the club had changed. And, you know, players that had been uh, loyal to the club were being 
uh, their contracts were being wound up. It it just lost its way. Mm. So it was time for me to go. And I set up um, in Melbourne as an exercise physiologist working in the clinic. But I also had opportunities then, and I travelled with the Socceroos. So I went away to places like Kuwait and Bahrain uh, with the Socceroos as their um, head conditioner. And uh, uh, it's... It's not a regret because I chose not to, but I had an opportunity to look at working in soccer mm. as a full-time gig. And, uh, I just couldn't. My, my, I had a young family and it wasn't right for them, but I, I still look on that and think what could have been if I had been involved in soccer because it, it's a fabulous game and it's being so international. I, I almost see it's like the sister of um, track and field. You know, mm. You've got your athletics track. And in the middle is usually a soccer pitch. Yeah. Sort of go, and they're both international, they're both international sports. It would have been great to work in there. But I was privileged to be able to go and be involved in 2006 with the soccer roos and things like that. It was just a a great, that with some of them, it was just a great, great time Mm. uh, doing that. And also around there, I got involved with cricket. And I've never had much interest in cricket either, really. But I went to India for three months and travelled the subcontinent as part of the India Cricket League. And Mm. for me personally, I'm not talking about coaching, me person, as a person. That didn't a, a great deal for me. Mm. <laughs> uh, I was able to work with some elite swimmers and do all sorts of different things. But I also worked with the AFL with the International Rules Team and went to Ireland and did that sort of stuff. And that's when we got talking to Andrew Dimitriou about the, the vision of having a club in Western Sydney. And what um, you may not know is that when I first... Um, Grew, well, I grew up in Canberra, but when I left uh, Yas, when I left Yas, I moved to Sydney. I had a job with Little Athletics in New South Wales. I used to travel 120,000 kilometres a year in New South Wales, predominantly out west, getting kids to uh, be involved in uh, in the sport and uh, setting up clubs um, from from um, basically Sydney right through to Broken Hill and everything in between. And mm-hmm. So I know Western New South Wales like the back of my hand. I grew up in Canberra. was the exact footprint of the Greater Western Sydney Giants. You've got someone who's come from a rugby league background into AFL, coming back into rugby league heartland to set up an AFL club. Um, it was probably logical that you'd get somebody like me to come and do that job at the Giants. And uh, the romance of being involved with one of the biggest clubs with the strongest history, which I know very, very well now with Bessenden, to mm. then come to establish a club and be one of the first people there and not only, say, um, help a club grow, but design the building that they'd be training in and, and how it would look and what it would be for generations to come. The mm. romance of that was too great for me. And I came and... Uh, I uh, spent uh, a considerable amount of time until I got sick with uh, working with Giants. Mm. And I want to talk a little bit um, about that or if you want to share a bit more detail about the challenges you faced there. Um, but, yeah, working Socceroos and soccer, like I'm not – I've travelled all around the world, been to over 120 cities and one of the things I try and do is go to – sporting events so I've been ice hockey NBA but I I would still say going to watch EPL two power clubs soccer is is probably one of my greatest uh experiences that I've ever been to so it would have been I I could definitely see why that is one of those what if moments for you Uh, for me I've had a surreal life um, I can still remember um the, the exhilaration of winning a grand final in 2000 
and we'd had the parade in Melbourne, which was such an honour to be involved in that. And uh, I went from that, and I had to run almost to the airport because I was the team coach at the Sydney Olympics where I was coaching the 4x4 relay and had the 400 runners and I had a few athletes on the team myself. But I was a team coach at our home Olympics. So to go from uh, the MCG to Stadium Australia and do, being involved in the opening ceremony, it, you know, I look back now and you think, that really happened? <laughs> Phenomenal. Yeah. But then to be in, uh, in uh, India and involved in, in that with massive stadiums packed with people chanting, Mm. And uh, it, it, it's just a, yeah, it, it's a, it's a trip, really. Uh, and what about you? You seem to have an absolute love for rugby. Have you ever tried to explore going into that at, at the at the level that you'd like to do? There's a, there's a fabulous coach in rugby. He, in some ways, he shoots his counterpart. Um, his name is Brian Smith. And mm. Brian is now with the New Zealand Warriors, but he was um, as manager, but he was. Um, the coach at Parramatta, and so I was able to get a little bit of a fix uh, with uh, Parramatta back in the day, and uh, uh, working with another guy I've got enormous respect for um, in terms of um, conditioning, uh, Hayden Knowles, and working with Hayden at Parramatta at the time. So I've sort of often got my fix with with rugby league going in there, but it's ironic that people in rugby league wouldn't know that I've got any background at all. And people ask me questions about AFL now as if, you know, I probably played the game and, and they think that I'm some uh, guru of, uh, of AFL. Like they should do is throw a football to me and see that I can catch like it's his hands. And, 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 but uh, no, my, my, everything's in rugby league. But you, did, you did touch on um, a challenge when you finished with the Giants and you mentioned your health there. Have you want to expand on what happened there? two things that I would say and I do I do with sincerity I've never worked a day in my life I, I've not all these things I've done I've just been fortunate enough that I do it and people pay me for doing it I, I just love love the um, life I've had there and I've also never had a sick day in my life and so things were going along pretty well at the Giants and were building quite quite well and um, I hadn't shared it with um, people at the club but um, my, I was going through a marriage breakdown and uh, my uh, wife at the time had decided that she um, could see better things for herself elsewhere and uh, I didn't cope with it at all mm. and I didn't share that with people. It, I didn't tell anybody about it and I started acting strangely at the club like forgetting things and becoming very emotional and so on and I sincerely believe and specialists around the world have agreed with me um, that I contracted an autoimmune disease and it was purely out of stress wow. and anxiety. And the autoimmune disease I had was a thing called limbic encephalitis. And uh, it's a complicated word, but limbic means uh, almost the most basic or primitive part of your brain. And encephalitis means inflammation of your brain. And so it was like my body turned on itself. There's actually a Netflix uh, movie called Brain on Fire. If anyone's seen that, what that uh, girl had in that is pretty much what I had, mm. but you never quite know what you're going to get with it. And so as I'm talking to you now, we're in March 2020, so imagine that you go to bed tonight and when you wake up, it's sometime 2027. Mm. And life's gone on, but you don't remember it. But you were part of it, but you don't remember it. I've lost about seven years of memories. Wow. My children, 
at the time, uh, Caitlin was uh, nine, then all of a sudden she was 16, and Callum was 11, and all of a sudden he was 18, and I don't remember any of that in between. Mm. Um, uh, I spent uh, a year uh, either in hospital or in, in care, um, and the chances of survival were about one in a million, and mm. uh, the chance of getting it are about the same. And uh, I've come out the other end um, very, very changed in my sense of self and what needs to happen and what is going to happen and appreciation of things above what I've um, had before. So what the limbic encephalitis did for me was uh, it, what the impact it had on me. I lost um, a little bit of vision in my right eye. I lost um, all sense of taste and pretty much uh, all my sense of smell, um, a couple of other bits and pieces. Mm. Um, I could only actually taste four things. I don't know what the significance of this is, but I could taste white chocolate, vanilla ice cream, uh, and Coca-Cola. Pretty much that was it. Mm. So I had a diet of those things all the time, and consequently I didn't know who I was. Mm. You know, when I was in hospital, I thought I was on a cruise ship, so that might be a bit context. Oh, yeah. but I put on like 20 kilos. And uh, when I started coming out of what I call my dance with Gaga, I was off the fairies, I needed to apply my own parameters of what needed to happen. And the logical thing was physically I had to get better and mm. I had to get stronger mentally, but I also had to find myself spiritually. I took myself off to Japan mm. and I sat up in the mountains of Nagano and I was quite emotional. Uh, that was another side um, affected this whole thing. I was quite emotional sitting up in the mountains of Nagano where they had the Winter Olympics in 1998 and I set my mental, physical and spiritual goals mm. and that was to get myself fit and healthy. Um, I thought that the best way to um, address my brain injury, my acquired brain injury, was to study. Mm. And at the time I was taking about 19 different types of uh, drugs, tablets a day that the specialist told me I'd have for the rest of my life. Uh, I didn't want that, so I needed to learn more about it. So I uh, enrolled myself at university and I did a, a, a postgrad in um, nutrition. And what I really wanted to know was, one, could I retain the information I needed to exercise my brain um, and could I communicate that? But also, I wanted to know about the anti-inflammatory properties of food. So I was learning from the inside out mm. and I applied that. And I'm really proud to say that right now as I'm talking to you, um, I take half a tablet a day, so mm. I'm from 19 down to half. But I'm very tuned into things like this coronavirus that's going on at the moment mm. because anyone that's immunocompromised, well, they're very, very much susceptible to what's yeah. going on in the world right now. So I'm very tuned into uh, to all of those sort of things. Mm. But um, that certainly changed in my relationship with people and the uh, significance of memories and uh, retaining those and embracing those and take a breath, take a breath, Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, uh, quite a powerful story. Yeah. I was going to say, take a breath just to tell those people that are important to you mm. and that they are the most important thing. Not, mm. not winning a grand final or going in to the Olympic Games. Most important thing is people. Mm. The people know how important they are. Yeah. 
you know how important you are to those people as well and that you just take the time to connect. Mm. Yeah, look, I, I, <clears throat> a totally different but quite similar. Like for me, um, and this is where this is, is all born from, I, I guess, my whole one-shot movement um, thing that I want to do, which is a bit of contribution back to people. But I become a very different person when we had a stillborn baby. Um, just from, I, I really did go down a spiritual lane looking for answers and all sorts of different things. And I just, yeah, the way I look and treat people just become so differently um, ever since that I don't know if awakening's the right word, but life event <laughs> that's that changed me definitely. No, no, you you grow, you definitely grow, and you know here in, well across the country. I mean, we've had this horrific time with bushfires. Mm. I drove through some of the other day. The regeneration is just incredible, and give it another bit of time, it's going to be stumbling through there with the regrowth that wouldn't have been possible without the fire. Mm. Well, you know, from a selfish perspective, I thought that's me. Mm. You know, I've, I've gone through my bushfire stage. I hope that's the end of that season. Yeah. I'm out the other side. I, I think um, I look back to those athletes that I used to coach back in the very beginning and how much they didn't get compared to the athletes that I've now got and, mm. you know, the athletes that I'm working with and, and being able to put things in context for them, like, uh, you know, the very real uh, possibility, maybe even probability, that the Tokyo Olympics won't go ahead. Mm. have a young 19-year-old girl that's so enthused and ready to go and she's in great shape and who knows what she could do there. She's the most talented athlete we've had in this country probably since Kathy Freeman. I'm talking about Benderia Boya, um, whom I'm privileged to be able to coach. Mm. Um, she's not going to be able to go. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think this broader base that I have through life experience, I can help her. I mm. can help her with that and put things in context and, uh, refocus on what's coming next. Yeah, and you have done a full circle, and I want to move into that now. You are back. You've got um, – you can describe your clinic side of the equation just so I don't get that wrong, but you are now – I see you um, all the time on social with high-performance elite uh, yeah, track and field athletes and that again. Is that uh, something that you always knew you'd go back to? Well, I never actually stopped. Coaching, even when I um, went to Melbourne to work for um, Essendon, I was still coaching athletes, and uh, that's how I kind of did the Olympic Games because I had athletes on the on the team for, uh, for Sydney Games. But I always kept coaching track. And the only time I've had a bit of a hiatus was actually when I was in hospital sick, mm. and even then I had athletes that were loyal to me, and uh, you know kept they kept coming to visit, and uh, as soon as we got back in, they were ready to go again. So I've, I've kept coaching. But once I've left um, the full employment of AFL, I've been able to give it more focus. And I've got a squad now of about 10 athletes that, um, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting group and it really keeps me alive and kicking. I, I love every, every second I have with them. It's a unique group. Mm. I've got uh, three of them are refugees from the Commonwealth Games and uh, from Africa that they are from. And uh, that's, that's interesting to... These people have got nothing in their lives, and to uh, help them find themselves, and it's almost uh, one in particular. You know, we've almost come through this journey at the same time. While I've been rebuilding my life, um, he's had to rebuild his life mm. from a different context here in Australia, and we've had to do it together from very different views, but uh, together. And 
that's not talking about anything about him setting foot on the track and running a PB and doing all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just been a, an interesting journey, but I've got a very talented squad of athletes um, from all parts of the world, and uh, yeah, I'm enjoying it. I've, I've got one one athlete in there might surprise you. I, I, I think he's uh, he's one of the most inspirational athletes that I've worked with, and he inspires the rest of my group. And he came to me by chance. Um, and he's only a, a he's nearly four to ten year old boy, and he's a twin. And his sister, uh, she's a, a very high level young ballet dancer and very accomplished in that regard. And uh, young Jackson Love uh, has cerebral palsy, and at birth, Jackson was deprived of oxygen in the womb, which is again resulting in having a stroke, and he's paralysed down his right side. I coach Jackson now. And he's the most driven, dynamic, mm. positive, focused young athlete you'd ever get. Don't talk to me about the fact that your calf is sore. Don't worry about the fact that you missed the train getting here. Don't worry about the fact you've got to pay money to come in. Mm. What's your life like if you were paralysed down one side of your arm, mm. not your body? And uh, that's what Jackson brings into the squad because he's, a, he's a always up and always focused and I've got this young boy training alongside some of the best athletes I've ever coached, literally world-class athletes. They're all grounded because of the reality of another person. Mm. Yeah. that I mean, uh, perspective is really everything. Um, and, yeah, when people get all wound up and worried about the little things, but, you know, that's if you put it into perspective, it's it can be a good reality check and humbler quite easily. Um, we, yeah, and, and just on that, like we were talking about the coronavirus, we're, you know, 2020 March and I've had a whole lot of stuff cancelled, you know, you have, but like, yeah, the Olympic Games, um, most likely won't go ahead and you've got a, an athlete that could be, you know, if, if it's probably 20 years since Kathy Freeman, um, that's, that, you know, that's, uh, a devastation in its own right on a different level but there's so many people you know probably far worse than her but just you know it's it's horrid well devastation is how you see it from your own perspective i mean for someone that's uh um, you know uh, diagnosed today with uh, terminal cancer Mm. that's that's a devastation Mm. for someone to be told well you're not going to Tokyo to complete at the Olympics. Well, that's <laughs> devastating in a different level. But, yeah. You know, it's, again, it all just comes down to perspective. But for this young, young girl and, and the others around Australia and around the world that are not going to get the opportunity to go there, that's that. Uh, it's very it's very sad. It'll be with them forever. I, I hope that the Australian Olympic Committee announce an Australian team in lieu of whether they go or not. Because mm. if they've qualified for the team, I believe they should be recognised as Olympians. If yeah. they didn't, it's not their fault they haven't been able to go compete. Mm. So I hope we have a, a team that has a little asterisk on it that they never got to compete. And oh, look, I think that uh, as we move past the, the virus and the coronavirus, that um, hopefully we can have an Olympic Games in, say, 2022 where our athletes can go and compete there. But whether all the same people are available and get up on the day, and, you know, that's, that's the great unknown. But, yeah, mm. we move forward. As, as I say, the devastation of something like coronavirus 
bother even talking about the Olympics for. Yeah, that's exactly right. So at the end of every episode, um, John, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, there's so many different stories amongst there from travel to experiences to life. Always ask a few questions, um, rapid-fire questions I call them. And do you have a book um, that has been, you know, really important to you or you think that someone could get value out of reading? so many um, uh, books that, that, I, that I read all the time and I was even been quoting things to you like Shakespeare today so mm. <laughs> uh, to, narrow, to narrow that down to one book. Oh, no, it can be two or three like if you really feel that there's a book or two or three that really, you know, um, could give someone in the audience uh, a, a lift, that would be amazing. Uh, and I, I read a lot of the autobiographies. Um, uh, one of my favourites is actually Steve Jobs and uh, how he's uh, been able to build his life. Mm. And I learnt a lot about um, uh, sport of different people by uh, reading their, their autobiographies. So I do a lot of that with, uh, you know, uh, people like Sheeds and uh, even, say, Kathy Freeman and the, the like, what we talked about before. Um, I love reading things like from uh, Nelson Mandela, biographies, that type of stuff. Yeah. I like the historical figures, people who've been able to uh, to make a difference. And I'm quite philosophical, so you'll find that I've got a lot of uh, books up on uh, uh, philosophy in my library. I always have done. I'm a, I'm a real book lover and I'm a book hoarder. I've got uh, yeah. more books than anything else in this house. <laughs> what would you... No, no, that's, no, it doesn't have to be that rapid fire, but just uh, what about the best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, best piece of advice would be um, don't take yourself too seriously. Mm-hmm. Take a risk and let the world come to you. That was from mm-hmm. my mother. The mm-hmm. other piece of advice that I would say, uh, now that you've asked me that, was um, don't don't look at things just as you want them to be. I, I thought at the one stage I wanted to be a teacher and I mentioned it to uh, an 84-year-old nun who was my music teacher and I didn't realise that she was actually had been my mentor for a number of years before that. We didn't call them mentors back in those days. Mm. And she said to me, how can you be a teacher? You're going to go to primary school, high school, then go to university, then come back to school. You cannot teach children just about education. You've got to teach them about life. Do your education. Go and do something different. If you still want to be a teacher, come back and then teach them, not just about reading, writing, arithmetic, but teach children about life. Mm. I actually became a qualified school teacher. But it's funny, I find myself in the school environment and I'm coaching. I am a teacher. Yeah. I teach people about life before yeah. I do anything else. Mm. And what about, is it, while we're on there, like just out of the blue, what would you say your biggest learning when you said you went up into Nagano, um, where you, that seemed to be a pretty important period in your life? What was there, um, a big learning there that was important to you? Yeah, the, big, the biggest learning is the vulnerability that we all have that I always thought that um, I was somehow removed from that or isolated from that. And, you know, you just, things just work and, you know, people must be negative in the way they think. No, it's not like that. And, like, right now, say we're talking about this coronavirus again, 
you can't remove yourself and think, oh, that happens to other people as if that would happen to me. I'll just get on with it. Hmm. Take it and understand your own frailty and your own vulnerability because I think if you don't embrace that, you're going to get taught a lesson. I got taught a lesson. Mm. And what about, I guess, just a just a, a, a thought that come to me, like working at high performance um, and with elite athletes, what about dealing with ego? Is that been something you've had to really help people understand? Because that's often a very nice humbler if you don't understand your own ego. Yes, well, I think that that comes down to the people around you, and mainly the head coach. You know, the head coach has sort of got a good understanding of that also, and that helps. But I think you treat people not as superstars. You just treat people as you'd want them to treat you. And uh, I've never really had an issue with people with ego. You just, uh, if they don't want to work with you, move on. And uh, so, no, that hasn't been, a, been an issue. I think sometimes, though, particularly when you talk about, say, AFL, they, they, they're in a bubble. Mm. And it's, a, it's a surreal bubble where they don't interact with, with people. And one of the things I think the AFL does extremely well is a lot of community work where they get them out working with, with the community. But, and that's what I was probably alluding to before when I talked about one of the most important members of my training squad is young Jackson. Mm. And he brings a sense of uh, reality and uh, uh, realism to, uh, to my squad. And I think that's the important thing to do with egos, make sure that they're in touch with reality. And if you're the coach, you've got to create that, or not create it, but make sure that they're exposed to that. Give them, give them reality. Mm. That's your job. Mm. Very good, valuable advice. So uh, I'd have to say I use the word colourful in a very good way because, you know, talking to you about your journey and, and, and experiences and I often talk to people about, you know, the world is a beautiful place and go and live with passion and purpose. You've mentioned that you've never worked a day in your life because you love what you do and some of the things that you've shared with us today about working with athletes, travelling the world, you know, working in sport um, and, and just doing the things that you love doing. It's been such a great conversation. Um, so I want to thank you for jumping on today's episode, John. I, I very much appreciate it. Oh, no, it's a, my, my pleasure. And if I can wrap up by saying one of the things that I now do is I work at a school here in Sydney. It's a very exclusive school in Sydney's eastern suburbs called the Scots College. And they asked me to come in there in a coaching mentoring role and uh, I'm now at the school two days a week and I work with about 27 uh, young boys there in year 12 and uh, I see them one-on-one for an hour at a time and the program is called the Entrepreneurship Program and it's teaching these young men to become entrepreneurial in the way that they think Mm. and they go up and they do a placement with the employer one day a week but they've also got to design things so they're going to have an impact um, whether that be an invention or um, uh, improve an area of what they do, some of the things that these boys are designing and developing because they've got no limits in the way they think and they don't understand failure. And I've got this great role there to just encourage it. I can, you know, fuel their fire of uh, a passion Mm. and uh, they're off and going. You know, that's great for me too because it keeps me alive and I think... Uh, if I can finish up by saying surround yourself with people of passion, people that have got fire, vision, 
positivity mm. and just get caught up in the heat of their drive and their ambition. And that entrepreneurship program at Scots College, um, I know there's schools in Victoria that are looking at doing it. There's one in South Australia looking at copying that very program. It's just a fantastic thing. It's been great for me. It's one of the things I'm thrilled to be involved with. And uh, yeah, entrepreneurship, it's uh, thinking differently, but more importantly, it's doing differently. Yeah, I, I do. I do. I have missed one question. Uh, you've just probably the reason it popped into my head is you've just mentioned about what you're doing there with Scotch College. But where do people find out more about? you um if they want to you know i don't know if your clinics or whatever um yeah i'm very rarely short of a word except maybe in the uh, quick fire questions or when uh, uh you get me a bit emotional but other than that i'm never short of a word uh, so i'd love to have anybody contact me the easiest way is through my website which they'll find at quinn elite sports services or quinn elite sports um, on uh, just do a Google search and it should pop up. Um, I also um, work out of a clinic in Melbourne in South Yarra and one here in Sydney in Double Bay. But what's becoming more and more common now for me is uh, a lot of um, consults um, via internet. And mm. so I'm, I'm working with people all around the world now mm. in terms of setting up their own goals and drive and ambition and maybe it's their own physical um, or rehab uh, programs that we're doing. But, um, yeah, that's an area that's really brought home for me and I'm enjoying it a lot. Mm. Uh, as I said earlier, thanks a lot for jumping on. And, yeah, like that, I think uh, you've got so many good, exciting projects for yourself happening and let's hope, um, yeah, once the dust settles on the horrendous situation at the moment with the um, coronavirus, normality can set in and, and people um, can start continuing to pursue their dreams of going to the Olympics and so on. No, Craig, look, thanks for having me. It's actually just nice to catch up with you and have a bit of a chat. And I uh, no, really enjoyed it. Thanks for the opportunity. But um, pencil in your diary and let's um, catch up again in another three or four years because I reckon there's better things coming. Definitely. Thanks for that, John. Well, I hope you got a lot out of today's episode with John Quinn. I found it quite an incredible journey. Uh, so many amazing stories in there and working across so many industries, high performance, but also the adversity and challenge that he went into. Just imagine losing memory of seven years of your life through that challenging time. Um, if you enjoyed this episode or any of our episodes, make sure that you share that with your your social media friends, anyone you feel that could get value out of the story, share that with them. Give us feedback, give us comments. We're out there trying to help people live a life with passion and purpose. My name's Craig Schultz. I'm the host of the One Shot Movement podcast. As I always say to people, you've got one shot at life. Go out there and give it your best shot. Till next time, we'll see you soon.